honor to welcome to Forward Guidance, Jerome Schneider, Managing Director at PIMCO. Jerome, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? It's, uh, things are well. It's been an exciting start to the year and, you know, uh, first quarter is behind us. And here at PIMCO, we've been inevitably busy by the uh, confluence of obviously various market stresses and, and punctuations, but also uh, the forward outlook, you know, with regard to the macro environment is incredibly exciting, although daunting to some investors. So definitely, Jerome, so PIMCO, as, as many viewers know, or should know, is a giant in the asset management world. You manage um, a large array of ETFs, uh, a mutual funds specializing in the short term uh, funding structure. So that short term of the yield curve. So when the Fed raises rates or you know cuts rates, it has a lot of impact on your world. Your, your official title is your, your uh, um, portfolio management and funding. And tell us about, a little bit about how those two uh, aspects work, because there's there's two parts of the job. And I think it's important to get into it. Yeah, it it is quite interesting. I think it's something that people have overlooked for for a good number of years. Uh, in in the consequence, when we think about the evolution of of cash management over the decades and really millennia, people have moved from uh, thinking about it as a as an investment where you can invest in traditional money market type of investments like treasury bills and even demand deposits. Those have been very vogue of late, but you know it comes in and out of style for a variety of reasons: rates, relative values, things like that. The cash management aspect, we here at PIMCO sort of decided to evolve it over the past 40 plus years. I've been sitting here in the seat as a managing director here uh, for about 15 years here at PIMCO. And one of the things we've noticed is that there are structural uh, ways that you can sort of increase your yield, still run high quality portfolios to help manage cash and cash-like allocations without being in a traditional demand deposit or treasury bill. And, and the real question is why would you maybe want to make that change or why would you want to be have a more uh, or a different approach and, and the way we think about it is that there's a variety of implementations which require perhaps the use of high quality credit risk or looking at different types of structured products or even just looking at the overall market structure which allows you to earn anywhere from several basis points or 100 to 1 percent of yield additional yield or hundreds of basis points of additional yield depending upon what your liquidity horizon is or depending upon what your risk tolerance is. So we've really utilized that concept to create an active management approach here at PIMCO that transcends about $300 billion of our clients' assets and have grown it to really be a focal point of thinking about cash management as this active evolutionary approach. But more importantly, I think truly to the heart of your question is that investing cash might might appear quite simple and and you can make it quite simple you could go out and buy a money market fund people have done various things by buying t-bills directly over the past few months and that's again been a attractive source of a relative safety but i think what we also want to do is look at what it practically means to the marketplace and for someone to invest cash means that that cash is either deployed at a bank on a balance sheet which they turn into a loan or it perhaps gets recycled into the Federal Reserve's uh, reverse repo facility and where it just sits there on the balance sheet, or perhaps it, it, get, it gets moved into different credit intermediation trades within capital markets. And that's where sort of the funding aspect comes in. To me, the world of funding sort of really relies upon a few things, how banks fund themselves. They do that through a variety of mechanisms, including the reverse repo markets that are bilateral in nature. They also do it through issuing secured and unsecured in, uh, debt, uh, whether commercial paper or certificates of deposit, but also the traditional funding markets where people can finance treasuries and agencies and other securitized product is an incredibly important barometer 
to understand the overall health of the market. And so we've seen this sort of markets break apart and become disjointed at various points in time where the cash markets might be relatively sanguine, but the funding markets are sort of hinting at additional stresses. And so for us at PIMCO, about 15 years ago, we decided to sort of merge these two to give us an early warning barometer of, of basically where we think there might be funding stresses to understand how banks change their risk appetite in real time to provide funding to the liquidity markets, really being the treasury markets, and then more importantly, extrapolate that to where we can be defensive if we need to be for our clients in terms of providing leverage uh, for leverage strategies that we have dedicated here at PEMCO, or even all our alternatives platforms, which routinely finance private debt or even bricks and mortar real estate that require funding from bank balance sheets. So to us, they're very interchangeable. They're great, uh, great indicators of, of where the markets may head, not necessarily do head, but we began to see things sort of percolate, you know, even in the repo stresses of 2019, effectively known as the Repocalypse, we found those to be really uh, an event which really to the ordinary person might have not been that interesting. But to us here on the short-term desk at PIMCO was a really exciting period that we really were able to see and witness the transformation of risk appetite initially in the repo markets. And so when I think about that, the repo markets have, you know, become, you know, front of mind ever since uh, Lehman and, and Bear Stearns of 2008, but really more frequently, and, and to this point in time, especially in higher rates, they're a great indicator of how we want to think about the level set of not only where can you finance assets, but the more important question is where can you invest your cash? And those two things may not necessarily coincide. And when they don't, the market is telling you something. Uh, thanks, Jerome. You are on the, the right podcast because I am fascinated in all things repo and, and so are our audience. And Jerome, just to give people a sense, you know, maybe they're listening to this, how of the assets that you manage in, in your ETFs, what is, what is that? Is it over $30, $30 billion? Uh, we manage about $300 billion actually off of our yeah. short-term desk. Uh, in the ETFs and the mutual fund landscape, the, those landscape, uh, it's closer to about $30, $35 billion. We manage a good deal of separate accounts for clients. And then we manage the uh, all the liquidity across the firm, firm-wide for folks. And so there's a good amount of different risk tolerances, liquidity horizons. And what I mean by that is how you actually think about when you need your cash, whether it's today to meet a margin call or to settle a bond purchase, or whether it's a year from now to perhaps buy a house or three years or five years from now when you want to retire. Those are all very practical implications for a wide variety of retail and institutional clients and, and, and frankly, our own portfolio managers here at PIMCO that we want to be thinking about how we want to be layering in that liquidity, really not only as a as a defensive mechanism, because when people think about liquidity, they always fear the worst, right? We've just gone through all these all these stress periods. But really, liquidity is a fascinating offensive mechanism as well to, to produce returns, not necessarily from a leverage standpoint, although that's history has suggested that, but really to be a liquidity provider. And to put yourself into that position is probably a formidable place at various points in time, especially when uh, the, the, you know people become more fearful of allocating risk to the market. Right. So your role has two parts, assets and liabilities, the two key key parts of finance. On the asset side, folks can buy a treasury yield. Those have exploded higher you know, because the Federal Reserve raised rates in 2022. Banks typically pay a little bit less than that. And you know, maybe they have, they have to pay a little bit more. We can get into that later. But a, a lot of your work on the asset side at PIMCO, over $300 billion, is on generating a return that's just a little bit higher than. Okay, if, yeah. if a, if a three-month treasury bill yields... 
uh, uh, you know, 4.8%. Uh, 5.1% now. 4.1%? 5.1. 5.1. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the one month is really low, right? Correct. Yeah. That's and, and this is, and this is one of the things And you know, I, we probably should put the punchline at the end of the podcast as opposed to the beginning of the podcast. But the reality is, is one of the interesting things about the market, you know, when rates were at zero, like people would say my job was perhaps easier because your benchmark was zero. And in and, and, and one case, that's partially true, but it really was driven by a mechanic, which was trying to outperform a, a zero asset by creating capital appreciation, not necessarily carry an income. And there's two reasons this is important right now. The first one is, is yeah, absolutely. Nominal rates are higher. Benchmark rates, SOFR, the, the Federal Reserve targets, et cetera, are, are you know, hovering you know, right now at 5%-ish and, and might and perhaps go higher. And, and that's really attractive for the average investor compared to where we were. But the point I would make is that the confining factors of being at a zero rate environment meant that the drivers of return, the drivers of excess return, alpha, were really driven by capital appreciation, i.e., for example, spreads moving tighter, uh, credit taking credit risk, um, even 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 rates moving lower, which meant higher appreciation or higher pr dollar prices in bonds. Um, and really, the second component of total return effectively is in play now. Something we actually haven't seen really since the global financial crisis, but really is reminiscent more of the 1980s, which is carry and income. And so the two components of total return being capital appreciation as well as carry and income work hand in hand. But now the emphasis is on that carry and income. Once we've gotten to this higher rate environment, a second thing has happened. And that second thing is the fact that we are in a environment where there's larger dispersion for a variety of reasons of those short-term assets, meaning the avenues move a little bit more from the median of what you can earn for immediate cash, intermediate cash. And that's often to the tune of hundreds of basis points. And so even within the T-bill curve, you'll see a construct right now where it is skewed that very short dated T-bills are often trading very significantly through benchmark rates. For example, the, the uh, one month bill is traded as rich as 100 basis points through where the expectation of Federal Reserve targets are gonna be. And you look further out the curve and you see you know, short term commercial paper, non-financial commercial paper, even short dated credit and asset backed securities offer you returns of 100, 200 basis points more than the expectation. And that channel, if you will, is incredibly wide at this point in time versus not being necessarily so wide at the zero rate environment. And so I, I view it as really an interesting environment whereby those investors who actually can forecast their horizon for liquidity needs are a distinct advantage to manage cash. And that really emanates with not only your average retail investor who probably has a little bit too much cash on the sidelines, but corporate treasurers and CFOs who are thinking about Capital, uh, capital expenditure, and when they actually want to be thinking about managing cash for uh, for forecasting uh, their own needs and funding needs for the next one, two, three years. So it's it's a lot of different options out there right now, which has made the environment very interesting, very attractive, and, and quite fragmented. And so just because rates are higher, investors shouldn't necessarily, or practitioners, I should say, shouldn't necessarily be lulled to sleep by a higher nominal yield compared to where we've been accustomed to over the past 10 years or so. And when the one month T bill is trading so rich, the, the yield is up to 100 basis points lower than the you know, equivalent Fed funds where they would be paid on the reverse repo facility or, or other other places. What does that indicate? And also, you know, in your, your prior uh, response, you said that 
what you see in the repo space often can give you an indication of what's really going on, whether things will continue to be liquid and good or if there's a sign of trouble on the horizon. So uh, really the demand for T-bills is, is a function of, of supply and demand. There's a limited amount of supply of T-bills, especially as we're getting into the debt ceiling, which we can touch back on here in a few minutes. But that just means that there's a limited amount of outstanding liabilities that the U.S. Treasury can issue. And by nature, by structural nature, over the past few years, the outstanding percentage of issuance from the U.S. Treasury has been has been quite subdued. Historically, it's been about 22, 23%, and now we're closer to 15, 16% of T-bills are as a percentage of outstanding, meaning that traditional money market funds, cash investors, are fighting for less and less supply in a, in a smaller pond. And that makes it challenging. But more importantly, when you layer on different events like interest rate risk, and secondarily to that, and what we're soon to be in the focal point later this week, it is really a focal point of thinking about, you know, when is the debt ceiling coming? That makes investors more hesitant about investing about potential where there is a potential default. And I underline the potential, but unlikely default for a default that might occur during the debt ceiling X date, which is the date basically that the U.S. Treasury effectively runs out of money. And, and I think in that construct, there's an artificial demand just to steer clear of that, and people are willing to pay a premium uh, that is quite significant in yield terms to stay very short. So that's why you're seeing this discrepancy in the front end, the front end of the market. More broadly speaking, does it does it declare you know a systematic response or a fear of anything like that? Probably not at this point in time. You know we have a we have a sort of this comfort zone uh, in the post SVB era whereby investors are aware of a few different things, but more importantly, uh, aware of unsecured credit risk, uh, unsecured depository risk effectively. Uh, they're also aware of thinking about cash management as a not a passive uh, a passive uh, action. It's really something they have to have a game plan and manage. And so there's been a lot of work that we've been doing with clients, uh, again, both institutional and retail over the past few weeks to solidify their game plans for cash management. And so that accompanied by these signals probably you know highlight some awareness but not necessarily fear and panic at this point in time rather we think that you know we might find ourselves in a situation once we get past the debt ceiling which might be a, a different type of liquidity framework a different type of liquidity uh, uh conditions which is a little bit tighter than we experiencing today which might warrant a different type of approach of more sensitivity but where we sit here today this is sort of i hate to say normal market functioning where rational people are buying assets to fill a specific need and they're willing to pay a premium to do that oftentimes have you know as we've seen over the through the pandemic people are willing to pay a premium for a lot of things in this case they're doing it for high quality assets to invest cash right so the debt ceiling that that will um the, the government might default that date is when may or june yeah it's actually probably going to get pushed back and, and and not to sidestep the question but you know, if we all had a crystal ball, we would give you the exact X date. And, and the reality is, is that there's a, a few different variables, if, if one is to be honest, of that come into this calculation. One, uh, the the tolerance of the, of the of the Treasury to actually sort of create additional runways. Two, there are some ways that the Federal Reserve can actually push out the X date uh, and, and resolve for potential defaults if we actually get to an X date. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a timeline there. And the third thing is actually simple tax receipts. Um, everybody's forecasting or giving the X date based upon actually when we all write our checks and they clear the IRS and they can actually process them. And, and that's going to take the next week or two to actually figure out. So uh, I think we'll start getting some more precise information on where that actually lies as we get into the third and fourth week of April. 
and then more importantly, how we actually want to think about addressing it. But right now, our best uh, best estimate here at PIMCO is something probably into the July and August range. We might actually push ourselves into the September range. But mm -hmm. I think, again, you know, this is something that uh, is is a known known. There's obviously a lot of debate. It's obviously highly politically sensitive, especially with both sides of the aisle trying to, uh, you know, at least at least have some type of approach to resolve this issue. But even if it happens, this seemingly is an annual or almost near annual event that we become quite accustomed to. I says, and Jack, I'd say, on the good side, you know, we've had we have a game plan that's in place, and it, it, it gets modified every every time we cross this bridge. But since 2011, where we know basically what needs to happen ahead of the X date to function and protect clients' assets. And in the unlikely event that we actually do get a default, make sure that we are uh, well aware of those situations and those sensitivities to, to steer clear. But again, we view the default as being a relatively remote type of circumstance right now. In fact, we would just focus on the perhaps the the post uh, the post resolution uh, conditions that that might emerge after that point in time. The key point is that there's going to be a date, let's say June or July or August, at which there's going to be a risk. And there are treasury bills that have are sufficiently short duration, a one month duration, that they will be paid back before that date. And yeah. that is why investors are bidding them up in price because they want to avoid that risk. That's the point you were yeah, Exactly. And vice versa as well. You'll start to see an inflammation of yields for those bills that are trading cheaper right around the prescribed X date. So typically like the three month bill, the three month three months from now puts you into July and August, you're going to see the sensitivity of those of those interest rates move higher and higher as you go through time. Again, it's in the minutia, and, and for the for an investor, you it may not necessarily be a big concern. You know, it, it's basically a, a, a situation whereby because the way a T bill actually functions, which is that you you buy the bill at a discount, meaning your proceeds are less than the par amounts. So you're if you buy a hundred thousand of T bills, you're buying it for less than a hundred thousand, and it crews up. The default actually, all it implies is that not necessarily that you don't necessarily get repaid par, but you may not necessarily get repaid par on the maturity date. And that's a very different thing. It's effectively like not earning interest in, in during that point in time of a default. Now, again, I'll underscore that that is an unlikely event. We're not saying that that is a base case at all at PIMCO, but it, it does create a different preference for different types of investors and institutional investors like money market funds absolutely do not want to be in the situation where they don't earn interest on their income. And whereas there might be some retail investors who are a little bit insensitive to that, might be willing to take the risk, i.e. earn higher yields for underscoring that risk, that could be an interesting opportunity. And so I think that tension is something that has been quite evident in previous debt ceiling episodes, and we're going to start to see it now, especially as it becomes more into focus this week. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. BlockWorks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods 345. I hear you. 
I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. So that's something I didn't even consider about the debt ceiling. Uh, the theory I had, and I'm curious your view, is is that the withdrawal of deposits from the banking system, which uh, you know, early on in March, I think the, the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, you, you earlier said SVB, that's what you were referring to, on March 10th, and then the week after, saw a significant outflow of deposits. So the, the money has to go somewhere. So it went to some of the big banks, definitely, but it also went into money market funds and buying treasury bills. And money market funds, I think now, uh, a lot of that goes into the Fed's reverse repo facility, but that's only available to institutional uh, um, players. So if you if the money has to go somewhere, so it's going to go into this short-term paper and drive deal yields down. How much of that explains the, the term structure? When we see uh, an indifference or, or, or actually a preference in terms of thinking about safety, and we witnessed that you know over the past few weeks, the gravitational pull of where the money ends up residing goes in a few different places. Money market funds don't just simply, you know, magically make interest appear. They have to invest that cash, as you alluded to. They have, they actually invested in a few different ways. Uh, yes, short data bills, as we highlighted, but they also invested in the Fed's reverse repo facility, currently paying 4.8%. That, that's quite attractive for sort of high quality assets, but there's also uh, some perverse implications that potentially come out of that, predominantly that the cash goes away uh, and doesn't get recycled into the system. Um, and so those excess reserves sort of sit there until they they move. Money market funds, just by way of context, increased in their assets under management by over $250 billion over the past month. So that's quite substantive, perhaps an indicator of uh, of some, 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 some preference to be more defensive. But the other side of it is, is that because of these bank stresses, banks themselves needed more money to fund their balance sheets. And typically, some of the smaller banks do so through uh, the the federal home loan banking system. And so the home loan banking system issues short dated paper to finance those activities, which inevitably found itself back into money funds as high quality government debt. And so there's been a variety of assets which have actually paid higher than the Fed's reverse repo facility over the past few weeks. And with that 300 billion of issuance, which has come through the home loan bank system uh, since the uh, since Silicon Valley Bank's uh, demise, that's been really a focal point and perhaps a sense of relief. I think over the next few weeks, once things settle down as they have, and, and perhaps, you know, again, that's probably a, a little bit more conjecture than, 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 than forecasting. Um, if things settle down, you'll probably find that those agency, the demand for uh, the home loan banks to, you know, continue to finance uh, bank balance sheets to the extent they were um, pre-funding them, uh, it will probably subside a bit, which means that the opportunity set for money market funds will be more consolidated once again and come back down. But again, I think that th there's a few different things here is that the difference for assets in being high quality is clearly, clearly at the front of people's mind in terms of thinking about what risks they're taking, what risks they're assuming, and if they take risk, which is which is which can be done knowing that they're actually going to be compensated for it, which is I really think the the key point that people have really been reawoken to, you know, several times in the past few decades. But really, this is you know the the the, the depository risk or risk to depositors who are unsecured and uninsured. More importantly, um, is, is the key thing to take away here, which is why you're seeing this sort of flight mini flight to quality happen. 
Right. And a, a lot of focus is on the Federal Reserve's extension of credit through primary credit, also known as the discount window, as well as the, the new BTFP, Bank Term Funding Program. But is it right to say that the issuance from the Federal Home Loan Bank, which I think is close to a quarter of a trillion dollars in March alone, is way, way more of a big, in terms of volume, is way bigger than the Fed? Perhaps, but like that's that's their purpose. And to be honest with you, I would be more concerned if markets didn't recalibrate or didn't didn't adjust for that, or or were unwilling to underwrite that risk at just a few basis points more in yield. And so, that's probably a good thing for the market. I take away this as sort of being uh, not necessarily a sigh of relief, but a sign of a, a, a more of a stamp of approval that during these times of stress, market functioned, agencies functioned, things worked generally how they how they should have at that point in time. And although there was a ton of uncertainty with regard to who actually bore credit risk, um, the, you know, the, the functioning of the market and making sure where liquidity was did did ultimately come at, at market clearing prices. And so the you know the the bank term uh, funding program was clearly there to help insulate the the market from wider contagion. It did its job. This week we see it actually paid down by mm-hmm. seven billion dollars, which is going in the right direction, if you want to call it that. Um, but at the same time, it's one of those things that uh, you know the Fed has immense uh, creative powers uh, to to address these things. They've been very prolific. We here at Pemco have worked with them several times during the financial crisis, even during the COVID crisis, about their alphabet list of programs from the you know commercial paper funding facility to the money market term facilities, things like that. The Fed the Fed does a good job, and I think other other agencies and other regulatory uh, uh, agencies have done. Uh, have adopted a similar approach. And so they're not necessarily afraid to being a little bit more creative in terms of how they deploying their their balance sheet nor their rights. Now, that doesn't mean that as investors, we should be complacent nor assume that the magic wand will always be waved to resolve these points of stress. But the one gold seal of approval that you know I will, would firmly give is the Federal Reserve has done a tremendous job about cutting off the left tail risks of funding through uh, through the reverse repo facilities or through the right through the reverse repo facilities on the right tail, and then on the left tail, uh, the, some of the term repo facilities that they can provide, in addition to providing dollar funding facilities to all the global central banks. These are again in the minutia, often in the background, often underappreciated. But what they do is make sure and highlight that when liquidity risk does rear its head, there's various avenues to diffuse those risks within. Um, within slight premiums to the market clearing levels. And, and that's really the fundamental thing is that before, including 2008, those avenues were not available and created very desperate outcomes potentially um, during during those points of time from a systemic point of view. So clearly systemic point of view is very different than idiosyncratic risk, but it's something that we should be very mindful that the playing field is very different now than, than it was even a mere 15 years ago. Because of the bank term funding facility, uh, quantitative easing, the standing repo facility, the fact that money market funds aren't investing in uh, commercial paper of banks that are relying on that funding. Yeah. I mean, let's put it this way. Um, You know, like any good student, you want to learn from mistakes, perhaps. And I'm not saying there was massive mistakes done at the Fed, but I would say that they look at markets and try to interpret them and try to create answers which don't necessarily remove market risk per se from the market itself market pricing risk but more corral the risk where they can provide a a systemic relief during exacerbated periods of stress and so in the case of the reverse repo facility came out that there wasn't simply enough assets to 
absorb all the excess reserves that were out there in the system. So we have the reverse repo facility, facility hovering at $2.5 trillion. That is that answer. On the, on the flip side, uh, you have a standing repo facility, which is the liability that provides emergency liquidity different than the discount window for all different types of asset classes during those times of stress when you have it. And again, the, the utility or usage of it has been sparse uh, because there really hasn't necessarily been a need, need. But knowing that it's there and knowing that it's been spiritually adopted has allowed for the market to sort of breathe, breathe a sigh of relief when it does come across these, these periods of time. There's other factors. And, and actually, Jack, one, one of the main ones that we would highlight here at PIMCO is, is is like we've been through three episodes, two and a half episodes, let's call it, of, of stress in the prime money market fund space. And for those uh, for those uh, observers here who don't necessarily know what a prime money market fund is, it's a money market fund which can invest in credit, specifically through bank, primarily bank certificates of deposit or commercial paper. We've seen that originally we were attended in 2008 with the failure of the reserve fund uh, with Lehman obligations. And then again, we saw that same stress appear in, in 2020 uh, when, we, when, we had the, uh, when we had the pandemic. And, and so there was answers to that through the commercial paper funding facility and, and through term lending facilities for these money market funds that allowed them to effectively defease out some of these credit risk exposures. But it's still at the forefront of many regulators' mind. In fact, the SEC still has an outstanding query in terms of how it wants to think about addressing this from a retail investor perspective. It's already done the institutional back in 2016, but the retail investors still own a lot of quote credit risk through these prime money market funds. So oftentimes they yield just a handful of basis points more. And so the fundamental question we've asked at PEMCO um, really preceding the 2008 crisis, but really for decades was, why would you want to take credit risk effectively for just a handful of basis points more than you would take government uh, sovereign risk in, the, in a government or a treasury money market fund? Both of these are rated, uh, rated type of vehicles. They're regulated as well, being 2A7 money market funds. But they're very different beasts when you get into credit sensitive environments. And so there's still probably forthcoming action to sort of curtail uh, the, the, the limitations or more importantly, make the, the strategies more susceptible to market movements, meaning they're going to move from a $1 fixed NAV to perhaps a floating rate NAV where the dollar value of the shares change in, in, in relation to the, uh, uh, to the credit risk exposure within the strategy. Those are all very functional things that investors should just simply be aware of, although they haven't been fully fully uh, implemented by regulators, including the SEC at this point in time, although clearly at the top of mind, given the experiences of the past few years. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, NAV is net asset value. Jerome, I want to compare the your world on March 9th, the day before Silicon Valley failed, to your world now. And by your world, I mean the, the short-term yield curve uh, all the way up you know, from one day to one year to maybe five years, um, and and to the risk-free curve, the treasury curve uh, has deeply inverted. Yields all across has fallen down, but uh, it's especially gone deeply inverted. And and then later, I want to ask you about the credit risk. But Leah, let's just start on the on the treasury yield curve, and and perhaps you know we can put a chart up that that I'll make later, just of c- comparing those two curves. Yeah, What's, it's, it's it's quite noticeable. How do you interpret that move? You know, I, I do you, do you, can you attribute oh, this is a bid for safety. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, yield curve predates a recession and that has all sorts of implications. What do you think? Yeah, you have, you have a few different things. I mean, okay, let's take a big, big giant step back and up in altitude for a second. Um, let's put it this way. Investment yields right now are, are at a relative high compared to where they've been for decades. And, and I think one of the big things that we talk about at PIMCO 
is understanding that the macro environment, while it might seem daunting, while we've been punctuated by periods of uncertainty over the past six, eight weeks, and more importantly, while we look out, look and see forecast recessions of varying degrees anywhere from next month to later this year to 2024 or beyond, the real question is why, you know, where does that make an investor think that there's opportunity or otherwise? And the key factor here, Jack, is that when you think about the world of rate movements, a key factor has happened, which is you have moved from a zero rate environment where the cost of funds and the cost of capital is zero. And the way we think about this at PIMCO is concentric circles of risk. And that the middle, you have that money market rate, those T-bills. And as you go further out those concentric circles, you move to different elements of risk, which inevitably move at the outest, most outer circle is to illiquid private type of credit or equity or, or hard assets type of investments. And the reason I, I sort of recalibrate the conversation slightly, I'm not to, your question is a very important one, but it's, it's important to recognize that when we sit here today, it's, it's an environment whereby, sure, rates could be a little bit higher or rates could be a little bit lower for a variety of reasons, but it's a much different landscape than we were for risk appetite today than it was a year ago, two years ago. And going back to my original top level discussion about the paradigm changing for fixed income, it's also changed from for from equity or risk taking and else another and other elements because of this higher cost of capital. And, and so when you think about it, it's not necessarily about capital appreciation; it's about carrying income and income distributions. I tell I set this out because when we look at the landscape now, what you're seeing is volatility for a variety of different reasons, and I'll get to that in a moment. But more importantly that general level of rates right now simply mean that the return for taking limited amounts of risk uh, in a very different way, earning that income component, is a much different proposition than it's been in quite a long time. Now to the technicals. And I think the technical fact sort of says, when do you want to own or why do you want to own? And this is why it's not necessarily as important as you might suggest or, or, or other people might suggest about when the entry point is. And so while we, you know, what is, it would have been great to say, you know, hey, I wanted to buy all the two-year notes in the world at 5.1% a mere two months ago. And, and now, unfortunately, today they're at 4.1. You know, that necessarily, that does, you know, that would have been a great trade to have on. But let's also put it in the context that, you know, in this environment, you also have to get into the world of a little bit of bond math that, 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 that suggests that the relative vicinity of earning a coupon that's 4 to 5% often outweighs I'll call it many of the sins of exactly getting exact precision of what the capital appreciation or depreciation would be of holding that asset over that point in time. And so it's also a function of just sort of recognizing the fact that a lot of the pain that we withstood in 2022 about the recalibration rates where bond prices went down, yields went higher, uh, is sort of being made up for in the, in the current environment with higher yield. So there isn't necessarily the need to be as precise upon it. Upon it. Now, the why, why are we seeing yields move lower or higher? Part of it has to do with inflationary expectations. Part of it has to do with pulling forward recessionary uh, expectations as well, pushing it where we originally thought here at PIMCO, a recession was gonna be a likely output for 2024. We pulled it into 2023, the second half of uh, Q3 or, or Q4. Um, and, and the reality is, is that these are probably relatively shallow recessions or very precise recessions in certain segments of the economy, not necessarily broad based at this point in time. But it doesn't necessarily, more importantly, uh, reflect 
upon a, a, a decisive Fed action, which means you have to cut rates immediately. And I think this is inherently the tension that you're observing in the market, that a lot of the rally, i.e. lower yields that you're observing in the front end of the yield curve are people wanting to be more insular, but at the same time, wanting people who have very different and divergent reaction functions to the Federal Reserve betting that the Fed's going to pivot. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily going to be the case. <laughs> Yes. So I, I think you latched onto a, a point about an inverted yield curve, which, which you know, now if three-month treasury is 5.1 and the two-year is far lower than that, people can say, oh, that's such a that's not a good deal because in two years it's gonna be it's gonna be much lower. And as you said, yeah, people uh, it was a better deal when the two-year was at was at above five uh, five um five percent. Yeah. But I, you know, frequently, I, I think, and I, you know, I haven't done the back test on this, but frequently before there's a big rally in bought and fixed income across the globe, uh, across the curve, I mean, there is an inverted yield curve. So you can't, you, you, you can't say, oh, it's, it's a bad time to own bonds just because it's an uh, inverted yield curve. Yeah, I'm, I'm more asking about uh, uh, the economy and also, yeah, your thoughts on the, the Federal Reserve pivot, because if the, the market is pricing in, I haven't looked today, but you know, three cuts up until the end of this year. If they don't cut, then it would be probably a better investment to always own three-month treasuries and keep on rolling them and keep your very, very, very short term rather than owning a one-year uh, uh, note that will be pricing in something that you don't think is happening. So yeah, yeah. What, what's what's your sort of broad view on that or just your, your way of thinking about it? Yeah, and I think it depends upon what your what your goal is. If you're just trying to manage cash and optimize cash for a relatively short horizon, yeah, that being at the front end of the yield curve, even in overnight type of you know uh, investments and, and, and short day investments, it might be the right right situation. If you're a pension fund manager or have longer dated obligations, you might actually want to take a bit of interest rate risk or as we say, duration risk. And that has become, you know, even for the most most novice investor, very aware <laughs> at what the, the the what duration is, given the recalibration of 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 movement of rates over the past year. Meaning your dollar prices inevitably move up from par to something less than par, or perhaps go back to above par. You know, if we get mm-hmm. a big uh, reduction in rates. But I think the Federal Reserve has is actually done uh, a pretty strong job in a variety of ways. One, as I mentioned before, in the in sort of satisfying the systemic behavior outcomes uh, from creating these these type of uh, facilities. But the second thing is they've been quite vocal about trying to be more communicative about their outlook. And, and while this week is 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 punctuated with a whole bevy of Fed speakers that you could spend the rest of the week just watching in and of alone. The reality is, is that the, the competing risks between growth outlook and inflation is at the top of mind for investors and, and the market, but not necessarily the Fed. And I don't think necessarily the Fed has been convinced or convicted that they necessarily need to pivot for a variety of reasons. And, and while the jobs numbers uh, per se are, are turning a little bit weaker, including the weekly jobs numbers, which are incredibly important uh, to pay attention to, not just the monthly ones, um, the ones that come out every Thursday, the reality is, is that the the strength of the economy is still on the, a little bit on the firm side for the Fed to actually pivot to support that growth outlook. And so with that in mind, Jerome Powell and, and colleagues are, are probably going to be inclined to continue trying to you know manage these competing interests. Um, and, and yet, while it's probably a bit of a coin flip whether you're going to get another interest rate hike, the thing that seems very peculiar to us here at PIMCO is the, the exacerbated situation whereby you have an immediate rate cut later this year to the extent that the, at least the market is, is forecasting it. And, and I think that the best way to think about it is not that we're betting at PIMCO that there's a, there is not rate cuts, 
But when you think about normalization of monetary policy, just as on the way up that your it, you know monetary policy is effectuated with a lag, on the way to on the way down as well, it, it also requires a lag as well, and doesn't necessarily mean unless something systemic or geopolitical occurs that you're going to necessarily get you know a, a giant amount of rate cuts at that point in time. So we think that the runway, if you will, is a little bit longer than the market expectations at this point in time for a, a pivot, if you will, from the Fed to address growth, uh, a growth situation, which still remains, you know, firmer than most people would expect at this point in time. So there's a little bit of competing interest at, at this point in time, considering that developments of the macro economy. Now, you know, for, for point of clarity, you know, at PIMCO, we're still believe that, you know, core, C, core uh, PCE is still above 3% at, at the end of this year and will gradually transcend to something closer to that 2.5%. But it's quite honestly a lot stickier than people expected. And we saw that in data last week, and, and we think we'll continue to see that. So the goal of, Fed, of the Fed is, uh, is, is really to be thinking about, you know, how quickly you get back to target. And there are pretty you know, pretty, you know, clearly a little bit slow on the way up, but it is on the way down, they might be equally as, as pensive. Um, one other thing I think to add here, Jack, which is important is that, you know, if Powell was to make a mistake, it's probably going to be on one that there's, uh, it's more on the hawkish side, meaning that he's probably going to make sure inflation is stamped out as much as he possibly can to help support that notion as opposed to supporting growth and and while might seemingly controversial his recognition is one of history quite honestly and he and he's pointed out volcker numerous times and, and the failures of previous uh fed reserve chair who didn't necessarily do that and even in volcker's case they did a pivot and then had to do a about turn you know again subsequently to re-tighten and, and i don't think powell necessarily wants to do that so it, you know, I th think that they're rationalizing that the, the level of rates is probably, you know, is, is good enough at this point in time, but not necessarily they have to start stimulating the economy back to a healthy condition and, and, and resuscitate it. Uh, they're not anywhere near that construct, at least as we sit here, you know, before the summer months. Right. So if, if the, the view that the yield curve might have gotten a little overzealous in pricing in Fed cuts. If that's correct, uh, you, you, you know, you, you, investors would be served by getting in that three-month paper and just, just rolling it. What about the uh, credit risk? So there's interest uh, where the risk-free rate is, and then there's the spread ab above that that you can be paid by taking, you know, the risk that you won't be paid back, which in the vast majority of these things is is small, but not zero, unlike treasuries, which it is zero, you know, debt, debt sling aside. Um, you know, I, I looked at a few of your ETFs and products, and you have a blend of treasuries as well as some uh, instruments that do have credit risk there. What what were you sort of being paid on uh, March 9th, the day before Silicon Valley Bank? And uh, how, did those yields go a lot higher? I, I, there was a, a fall in value because of sort of a liquidity scramble. You know, just me, you know, little me without a Bloomberg terminal, just looking at the sort of option adjusted spread for high yield on the, the Federal Reserve's website. It didn't look like there was a huge, you know, March 2020 blowout moment, but you know, maybe there 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 was. I'm just not aware of it. Yeah, there's two there's two aspects of this, quite honestly. Um, if you look at our portfolios, what we try to do is is really by be diversified. And, and I think one aspect which was easy is easy focus for many short term portfolio managers and people who are sort of similar elk is is to take 
corporate credit risk. Uh, they do it through taking short dated obligations uh, issued by financial and non-financial organizations. Uh, mostly financial, just because that's the way the, the front end of the yield curve is dominated at this point in time. But what we think at PIMCO is that a more diversified approach, which includes structured products, which own high quality you know, receivables that are secured by uh, you know, a variety of things, whether it's prime auto loans or, or credit cards and things like that, that are structurally superior and have a you know, AAA rating. They offer a complement. And the reason I give you this construct is that when you get into periods of stress, the market in an inevitably obviously wants to show weakness and or wants to become weaker through wider credit spreads, corporate credit spreads and, and likewise, but doesn't necessarily always trade there. And so a lot of the, the market, uh, it, it becomes sort of, uh, you know, sort of very limited in terms of the actual trading activity because no one wants to really, unless they absolutely need liquidity, they don't want to necessarily pay for it. And it goes back to my notion about liquidity being a defensive notion as opposed to an offensive notion. Defensive means you have excess liquidity where when you get into those points of stress, you don't necessarily need to raise cash. And if you're offensive, if you have excess cash, you can provide that liquidity to the market and earn those above market premiums during those times of stress. And that's where you know, we sort of sit and view the landscape here at PEMCO. So market movements were nominally very, very limited changes because of the two factors that while credit spreads might've moved uh, wider, in general, some of the rate movement was toward the lower side and they sort of offset that. There, the one example is in the very, very front end, uh, some more credit sensitive and financial sensitive type of names. Clearly those are more impacted given sort of the, just the, the, the idiosyncratic concerns that were, were, were happening at the time. But the, you know, in terms of how we actually think here at market uh, at PIMCO uh, between the day before and the day after, uh, I'll be honest with you, it, it wasn't that much different. Um, I, although we didn't necessarily forecast that prescribed date per se, we're always thinking about these type of risks, quite honestly, not to be self-congratulatory, but it's within the framework of, of how we think about liquidity management versus and exposures to all different types of financial institutions and within the market structure itself. And, and that's the important thing is recognizing and rationalizing not only the credit risk that you have to every single you know, every single counterparty, whether you own it through a uh, unsecured, uh, you know, senior debt obligation or whether you own equity or whether you're transacting uh, a bond trade with them and you have unsettled credit risk that way. Those are all factors that that come into play for us and sort of come into the calculus of how we treat each and every one of our exposures. And so that for us remained the focal point at, at that point in time for for for, for PIMCO. Um, I think one the one thing that it did do was sort of create those opportunities I alluded to before where you did have small pockets of need where there was liquidity in the external world where PEMCO was able and other people were able to provide it and, and earn some above market premiums. And it's not to be per se, you know, you know congratulating that we had a, a point of stress. Uh, the reality is, is that market functions and, and going back to my point about the cost of capital, more broadly speaking, means that you know people become more tentative with their capital today than they've been for the past 20 plus years and, and when i say people it's everybody from treasury market makers to to uh to investment banks and, and likewise and so to be a, a functionary um is a slightly different mechanism now than it was in the late 1990s early 2000s even 2010 through you know through recent memory um that means you can be a liquidity provider earn those premiums and effectively, you know, and effectively um, manage that process uh, for for you and your clients uh, more adeptly. 
I, I think that that's it. And it's an important point about market functioning and market liquidity that people have begun to read about, begun to hear about. And, and the way it sort of unfortunately gets characterized is that there isn't a lot of liquidity within the markets. And, and that's a, it's a bit of a misnomer, quite honestly. We've written a few papers at PIMCO that sort of get into the minutia of this. And, and while we think there's better ways to sort of create liquidity within specific markets like the treasury market, the reality is, is that people become grossly accustomed to transactional costs, bid, offers, however they want to think about it, in every market being almost zero, locked, locked market, as we would say. And that's not the case anymore. These, these institutions want to make money. they got to pr prove to their shareholders that there's a cost of capital and they got to be rewarded for it. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's how capital markets work. But it's very reminiscent of the, you know, of the 1980s and even early 1990s when I started my career that, you know, market makers wanted to be paid. And so it doesn't mean there's no liquidity. It just means there's no liquidity at a, at a zero bid offer like many index based approaches or many you know, retail investors have become accustomed to in recent memory. And that's and that's an important point, really, to think about in terms of how to think about your investment process, how active you are, how much you trade. Um, you know, that, that, that's a paradigm which has inevitably changed over the past, past few years, especially with the rate increases over the past year. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage own a lot of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. My final question I want to ask you about is the funding side. We've talked a lot about the asset side. The funding side of funding that the assets that PIMCO owns, you know, I've been thinking, and maybe some people watching this have been thinking a lot about the banks. PIMCO, you know, not a bank, very different from a bank, but you know, everyone has to fund their assets somehow. On your funding job, what what are you trying? What are you trying to accomplish? And what are your goals? And what are you seeing right now? Yeah, it, it entails several different level, levels here. And really, what I'll be clear about is that yes, we are entirely different than a bank. We're uh, we're focusing on client accounts or client benefits that are are specific, dedicated types of transactions. And so when we think about it, it's specifically for several different frameworks. One, funding to meet sort of shorter dated funding needs, whether it's like an immediate cash need for 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 uh, uh, for meeting a bond settlement, or, or more structurally speaking, leverage strategies which might have incorporated a bits of leverage into those strategies. That typically is found in our alternative space or a more illiquid type of strategies approaches. Um, but in the, that really is a sort of thinking about liquidity as a transactional element, meaning looking to lock up longer term liquidity, uh, whether it's uh, based upon a specific broad based strategy or a specific asset based funding mechanism. And that's where relationships with traditional and non traditional type of forms of leverage providers, whether it be insurance companies, uh, banks, uh, broker dealers, places like that who can who can do that, or even or even the capital markets and thinking about the structured products arena is also one. So the job is to think about not only the level of funding, 
but also thinking about the safety and resiliency of the funding. And that second part is what's incredibly powerful because you don't want to necessarily have a lever portfolio that gets effectively uh, you know, put in a bad position because its leverage moves away or becomes a higher cost of capital uh, because, of, uh, because of the rate uh, because of rate sequencing or some unforeseen element. So part of it is simply managing the, the 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 length, the duration, if you will, of funding as well. And I think, you know, holistically, the way we think about this along with our teammates uh, around the firm is, is utilizing it as a basis of reference for the initial asset purchase, perhaps, or the ongoing retention of, of assets given re reconstructed landscapes. And so we want to be very mindful of uh, of those Elements not only as as a as I mentioned a barometer of of the health of the funding markets in totality, but also of banks' preferences and funding providers' preferences of different types of credit risks as they evolve through time. And so, while we you know in this environment haven't necessarily witnessed a seismic shift at all in terms of the relative uh, ability to 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 obtain leverage for existing or new trades. Uh, undoubtedly, the higher nominal rate of what the cost of funding is, as I mentioned, is going to sort of put a different layer of uh, of, of 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 view, a viewpoint through through that looking glass of whether you actually do incremental trades or new trades, uh, you know, within within a uh, dedicated strategy. And so, from that perspective, that's really where the funding mechanism comes in. So, again, I think it really it really comes into understanding the world of, of funding from both a traditional as well as a non-traditional element of where the relative value is, and then ultimately making sure that your assets and your liabilities are, 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 are as best matched as possible to, to defease both, both, sides of, uh, both sides of those risks. Right, so a, a lot of PIMCO is people put money in and it's an unlevered strategy, but I yeah. guess a lot of the funding thing is when uh, PIMCO does employ a leverage strategy, you have to fund that somehow. Yeah, so, so what are the sort of uh, structures yeah. and and uh, the duration? How do you think about managing, you know, if you're funding a, a real estate portfolio or you're funding a, a private debt portfolio? I, you know, I don't, don't know the specifics at all. Well, you said matching. Is that you're matching the duration? So if you think you have a, a duration of, of 10 years on the assets, you want to borrow at, at 10 years. Uh, d based on the duration of the assets, are you making assumptions based on inflows, outflows, because that's, I know, big in the banking world where, you know, yeah, you, no. you think it duration of seven years and you have a duration of one day because there's bank run. Well, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And, that, and that's something that we think about. And that's quite honestly the starting point of different strategies. So some strategies have lockups, which are longer, meaning there's not daily liquidity like you would have in a traditional 40 act fund at PIMCO. And I appreciate you create, highlighting that important nuance that you know most of the money here at PIMCO is not you know not a lever type of strategy situation we're, we're talking about an isolated uh, you know a, a, a known a known but smaller group of, of segments but I think you know how you typically finance whether it's through a direct lending uh, a direct lending program meaning your asset you're financing a specific building or a type of asset a portfolio of loans perhaps um, whether you're using perhaps repo funding which is collateralized funding uh, which is typically less than a year, but has mark-to-market provisions, meaning the mark-to-market of the assets means you have to exchange collateral or margin pretty much every day. Um, these are all factors that we take into account with suitability for strategies, in addition to looking at the overall need of the portfolio. In addition, like you said, what is the structure of the, of the portfolio itself? Does it have daily liquidity needs or, or not? And, and that in and of itself means you can have different horizons. Um, 
you would love to have matched funding for every asset that you have out there, but typically the markets don't don't allow for that for, for a variety of reasons. However, there's a variety of ways to mitigate many of those reasons. And given our experience and the depth of our teams, we're considerably trying to evaluate those best possible outcomes uh, to, to appreciate um, the nuances of the liquidity markets, but also find high quality and, and quality assets to put into strategies that are suitable for that. So the, the mechanisms, the way we think about it, uh, is 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 really looking at a risk appetite of, of of people wanting to loan money versus assets, and then secondarily, but just as important, thinking about the legal framework to do so, whether it's a repurchase agreement, a total return swap, an outright loan agreement. There's a variety of ways we can do that, and that just sort of gets into the minutia of, of legal and, and economic cost to a variety of different counterparties, as well as ourselves within the strategies. Jerome. I- if, if, uh, as we reach a close on this interview, if I were to ask, what are the opportunities that you see broadly? Yields are high on a historical basis over the past 20 years, but they're de- declining in, in the forward market, the forward you know, inverted yield curve. Sounds like credit is, you know, it's not 2021 where your you know, credit spreads are very, very narrow, but they're not super wide. So how do you go about sort of allocating and, and thinking about where the best risk adjusted return is, is for your clients? Yeah, you know, I think we think, and we're excited here at Pemco about the overall recalibration of yields and the overall construct. We remain defensive of places like corporate credit. We are more constructive on places like securitized product, including agency mortgages. That just sort of means that we would like to be up in quality, a little bit more defensive. And, and while we don't necessarily know that the ten-year note will be at X rate, you know, a year from now, we do think we're in the general vicinity of a ten-year note that's you know three point two five to four point two five percent. Uh, you know, over the course of the next few quarters, let's call it. And that puts us in a world that you could have a you know slight recession uh, you know in later two thousand and twenty three. But at the same time, recognize the fact that you know if you can walk away with a higher volatility environment and all this uncertainty around you and still earn four percent type of returns, plus some perhaps appreciation in capital uh, as well, um, that's not necessarily a terrible place to be. I'm probably underscoring the type of expectation. Uh, again, no promises, but I, I sort of think that the world of fixed income is is relatively attractive, given the uncertainties that we would highlight on the outer realms of the concentric circles of risk at this point in time, especially in those avenues that were benefiting from low rates and capital appreciation over the course of the past decade or two. It's, it's one of those realms that people are finally taking a fresh look at, at, at fixed income and, and sort of the, the opportunity sets that we see there. Not to be speaking your book, although clearly I, I work at PIMCO, I would say this is that the, if I said to you, we had this conversation three years ago and I said, hey, volatility is really high or hey, volatility is really low. And, and, you, and you said it to the average you know, RAA um, or, or person walking down the street, um, whether it's related to anything that's become more colloquial now, crypto, stocks, um, even bonds. Um, people say, what are you talking about? And the notion of volatility is a guttural instinct, which we've all witnessed over the past few weeks, which is, you know, it, it, it's very, it creates these, uh, these, these, these reactions, which are very, um, you know, asymmetric in some ways. What investors really want at this point in time is sort of a lower volatility outcome. And, and they are sort of happy about that. They recognize the fact that, sure, it'd be great to do really well in a trade that does really well. But they also witnessed the destruction of, of market value very quickly for a variety of reasons over the past few years. And that perhaps is another outcome to come. So volatility and subduing, finding smoother roads to volatility 
especially as Federal Reserve and other central banks are removing that volatility, are, are, are actually reintroducing volatility mm-hmm. in the market, as they, you know, which is the exact opposite of what they've been doing for the past decade. That's something that's really at the forefront of people's minds. So providing solutions that provide a lower volatility landscape is something that people want answers for. And and they, the reason, and we started this program talking about T-bills and T-bill yields being low, that's because the price volatility of T-bills is very low. It sure it has to do with rates, but it has to do with people really wanting to get out of the way of volatility in the broader marketplace until they have the ability and the willpower to put risk capital back to work, which maybe tomorrow, but more is unlikely after we get a brief brief respite in the, in the growth period we witnessed over the past few years. Final question, Jerome. Uh, you, people can you know, look up the funds you and PIMCO manage. They can find out the yields. That, but even the, the measly one-month T-bill still beats you know the vast majority of the banks in terms of what they pay in deposits. Do you think banks are going to have to pay more for deposits? Yeah, this is, I think, the, the key thing I was uh, highlighting is the outset, sort of the punchline is that in the world of front-end rates, banks, some banks are going to need to pay more for deposits. Others are actually going to go the other way and pay a lot less, the big banks likely. And so they simply don't need your deposits because of the excess reserve position. So you might find some banks that are offering you 2% deposits in a 5% rate environment, and you might have other banks that are really wanting your, your depository rates and offer you 5 to 6% for you know, some type of term premium over that point in time. Um, and, and that is a wide, wide band of how you want to th- how you want to think of it, which means that investors have to look around and survey the landscape, understand that there's a reason probably why some banks are charging more than others, but at the same time, utilize the known knowledge base to your benefit. So if it's an insured deposit versus an uninsured deposit, how much interest rate risk you're taking, those are all factors which are very, very important to recognize in, in, this, in this current landscape uh, that we are in right now. So I view it as being, Yes, a benchmark rate might be at 5% right now, but the opportunity set to be at 2, 2%, or the opportunity to set to be at 6.5% or more is, is just as a likely outcome depending upon what your time horizon is, where uh, you know, what your average quality of, of the type of investment you're making, and, and frankly, the, you know, what, what, how you want to think about actively managing your cash, and that has a lot to do with it as well. So that's why it's so exciting to our short-term uh, portfolio management team here at PIMCO, the current environment right now. Well, Jerome, given your incredibly important and you know powerful job, I'm going to take a guess that you don't have a Twitter account. Would I be right right about that? I do, I do not have a Twitter account, but uh, probably because, as you probably witnessed, I was I can never be limited to 144 characters, or even <laughs> in the old days. So, given the, given the the verboseness of my of me, but uh, unfortunately, I don't. But you can reach out. Um, Pimco.com uh, has has all the has all the ways to get in touch with us here at Pimco. Well, Jerome, thanks so much for sharing your time and insights, and thanks everyone for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.